0: If you have your Bible, please open it to the Gospel of John, John chapter 19, beginning in verse 31. Today we'll be going through verse 37 in a sermon entitled, The Fountain of Life. If you don't have a Bible with you, please grab one in the pew in front of you and turn to page 625, 625 and the Bible that's there. And if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Please take that uh, with you. hope that you would take it and read it. And today, please follow along. John 19, 31 through 37. If you found your way there, please go ahead and stand as I read this text. This is the word of the Lord. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate, That you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. Says the word of the Lord. Please be seated. He chose poorly is maybe my favorite movie line. He chose poorly. comes from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Now this movie is about the archaeologist, uh, Indiana Jones, and the professor of archaeology. And on this particular quest, he teams up with his father, who he's been estranged from for a while, only to discover that his dad has been on a lifelong journey to find the Holy Grail. And the Holy Grail... In this movie contains these uh, legendary mythical properties that anyone who has the grail and drinks of this grail they would live forever. Uh, the Holy Grail is the cup that uh, Jesus gave to his disciples to initiate the Lord's Supper and also apparently uh, the legend is that Joseph of Arimathea caught his blood uh, at the cross in this cup and so if anyone would drink of this they would live forever. And the line he chose poorly comes when one of the, one of the main characters, Walter Donovan, uh, who there's a surprise twist surrounding his character, but he's there uh, kind of at this uh, temple of the grail, and he's got to make a choice between all of these cups. And he grabs a cup... That's all golden and has all these jewels and everything on it, and he drinks of this cup. And right after he drinks drinks of it, he starts to age like super fast. He ages incredibly fast, like turns into a corpse and then a skeleton, and then next thing you know, his body's blown away to dust, nothing. And then, in the most, uh, in the greatest understatement, this this uh, priest of the Templars says he chose poorly. And I just love that line. He chose, he chose poorly. And our text today, in my mind, I was thinking about this, contains the real Holy Grail. Uh, the real Holy Grail. The Holy Grail is taken on kind of this mythical fountain of youth idea. You know, the fountain of youth that people have hunted for. Uh, Ponce de Leon, there's this mythical fountain where if someone drinks of it, they'll live forever. It's in numerous cultures, this legend of this fountain that you can drink of and live forever. But in our, in our text today, it's really contained here is the real, the real grail, the real fountain of life. It's in our passage. And John here is an eyewitness. He tells us, if you look back at your passage in verse 35, he says, "...I saw this, and I'm bearing witness to this. My testimony is true." And he tells you why he's telling it to you. I'm telling you so that you might believe. In other words, John does not want you to choose poorly. The key to immortality is not found in some mythical holy grail or some fountain of youth that some explorer might find. The key to immortality is found in the realities contained within this text. Uh, The blood and water. And today that's exactly what we'll see. Two realities of Jesus' death. Two realities. And by realities, I mean that which corresponds to truth. That's how John presents it. Two realities. That which corresponds to that which is. Real as opposed to a legend. we'll see first the physical reality of Jesus' death. And then flowing from the physical reality of Jesus' death, we'll see the spiritual reality of Jesus' death. And without the first, you can't get the second. There's the physical reality, which brings about the spiritual reality. Now, my purpose today has got to be that of what John's is. Whenever there's a passage like this and he tells you, I'm telling you this so that you might believe, that's got to be my purpose. And that's my purpose today. Just to relay to you what's here in the text so that you might believe. And there, no doubt, are people here that have never believed on Christ. So that's my hope and my desire is that in hearing the truths of this passage, that you would believe today. That there's no reason after hearing and seeing what's here that you should walk out of here not believing this. And if you are a Christian, uh, how how does this help us? Well, we continually look to Jesus, and as we continually look to Jesus, it bolsters our belief. It becomes like food that we eat to help us to live. And the more we look to Him, the more we're able to live, the healthier we are. And so it strengthens our belief. So that's my purpose today, that you would believe, if you've never believed on Christ, that you'd believe today. And if you're already a believer, that you would be strengthened and encouraged as we look at these two realities of Jesus' death. Now remember the context of where we are. I told you this text kind of follows a pattern similar to what you see in the Apostles' Creed or or many of the other New Testament writings. That Jesus was crucified, that he died, it's important, and that he was buried, then he rose from the dead. Last week, we saw the circumstances surrounding him being handed over and taken up upon this place of the skull to be be crucified. And we saw really three things to help us in our understanding and, and our belief. We saw first the meticulous sovereignty of God that was involved, that God was providing for himself a sacrifice, and there were... Uh, details that we're able to see clearly in the passage that can't be accidents there's no such thing as chance there's only the sovereignty of god and there are all of these details like jesus bearing his own wood the wood of the sacrifice Um, him going to the place of the skull not a coincidence dying being numbered with transgressors not a coincidence that he's numbered with sinners dying in the place of sinners Even what Pilate writes in his own malice that Jesus is the king of the Jews. God has caused Pilate to become a prophet, proclaiming the good news to the world. And then lastly, the soldiers throwing dice for Jesus' clothes. That all tell us that there there is a meticulous God who is sovereign over even small details, providing a sacrifice for himself. And we saw the perfect love of Jesus, how even in his most gruesome time of agony and pain, he is loving his mother even to the end. He's providing for her. He's honoring his father and his mother. And we got a picture of this new community that Jesus builds in his cross work. It's a closeness amongst his people that transcends even blood family, relatives, that the family that we have in Christ is closer than even blood. Then we saw the finished work of Christ, that Jesus was actually accomplishing something when he died. He wasn't potentially doing something. Right? He, he wasn't making people savable when he died, that he was actually dying to save people. And he himself believed it, and that's all that matters, is what he believed about what he was doing, and he believes he was dying for sinners. And he accomplished that work. It was finished. And so now today we come off of this as Jesus is given up his spirit to his father. He's died. We now move into our text to these details recorded by John. These two realities of Jesus' death, which are going to help us to believe. So the first reality today, the physical reality of Jesus' death the physical reality. Now, in this section, if you take notes, it may be helpful to have um, some substructure in your notes around three words, hypocrisy, brutality, and necessity. So the physical reality of Jesus' death, we're going to look at, it's hypocrisy, brutality, and necessity. So first, hypocrisy. Verse 31, if you look back at your passage, our details are they're told to us that it was the day of preparation. And since it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that might, they might be taken away. So this is uh, the day of preparation. And any day before a Sabbath is a day of preparation. But this one in particular is special because on this Year At this time, the Passover is landing on a Sabbath day, and so it's like a double Sabbath, and this is a special day of preparation. It's a Sabbath, and, and these leaders of the Jews, of course, you know in their mind what they are. They are doers outwardly of the letter of the law, <clears throat> and they want to maintain that outward holy appearance, and they don't want to defile the Sabbath, and so they say we've got to honor the Sabbath. And we've got to keep this day holy. And we can't have Jesus dying on the cross later and hanging on the cross the next day. Because if he does, we're going to defile this land. God has told us in his word in Deuteronomy twenty-one, twenty-two 22 through 23, that if we execute someone and hang them on a tree and we leave him up overnight until the next day, the land will become defiled. So in their mind, they think they could defile the, this holy Sabbath by leaving Jesus' dead body hanging on a tree, this is what Deuteronomy 21:22 says: If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain on on that all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for your inheritance. They're worried about God cursing them, cursing the land and cursing their Sabbath day if they're to leave Jesus' dead body up overnight. Because that day is a high day. And their hypocrisy cannot be more plainly revealed in this one detail. All the while they're concerned about keeping this day a holy day, they are not at all concerned that they have participated in a predetermined plan to carry out a false trial And murder an innocent man. They're killing or killed, he's already died. They have killed an image bearer of God. And they're concerned that God might be upset if they leave his body up too long. They're hypocrites. They want to follow God's law. To the T, if possible, meanwhile, they totally neglect the most glaring and obvious hypocrisy, which they have now made themselves murderers. John Calvin says it this way, As is usual with the case of hypocrites, they direct their whole attention to small matters, and yet pass by the greatest crimes without any hesitation. For in order to a strict observance of their Sabbath, they are careful to avoid outward pollution. And yet do they not consider how shocking a crime it is to take away the life of an innocent man? And of course, we've already seen this in their unwillingness to even go inside the house of a Gentile. Meanwhile, they're conspiring to kill Jesus. And now it's revealed to us yet again the hypocrisy. And what we ought to take note of is maybe not so much the hypocrisy of the leaders of the Jews, but what it reveals to us about human nature. And that this is the way that we are in our human nature. For to some degree or another, we are all hypocrites. We often, if we are honest with ourselves, like to be observed being something we may not truly be. We may keep the letter of the law and be good Christians publicly. Meanwhile, in the privacy of our own homes... Or when no one is even around, we may be something entirely different. We ought to be aware that this is uh, not simply a sin of the people that crucified Jesus, but it is a common sin of all men. And one of the reasons Jesus is actually dying here on the cross. It reveals again, over and over again, our human weakness. In so many ways, John has done it. And again, he's done it again. And showing us in the stark reality of a religious person who literally they, they will strain a gnat and swallow a camel. The hypocrisy of it all. You can't miss it. There's also the brutality. The details of the crucifixion are not really spelled out for us in the Gospels. Um, and I think. Probably the reason why they are not is because they don't need to be spelled out in the early church. Everyone, more than likely, has seen a crucifixion. The Romans crucified people at an astounding number. And more likely than not, everyone in the early church had seen a crucifixion. But we, we haven't, right? We haven't. We don't really know about it. The little trinkets that are made of Jesus or the paintings don't really capture its brutality. But we need to understand the details of it, so I'm going to explain it. Uh, But only for these reasons, not because of uh, I want to do it. It's something incredibly, I think, if you love Jesus, even painful to think about. But for these reasons, I think we need to understand. Number one, it demonstrates the incredible cruelty of man. This is the most horrific way to die, I think, ever created by man. I think if you look through even medieval history, the ways they tortured people, this has to be the most prolonged, torturous way anyone has ever died to be crucified. And it demonstrates, I think, uh, clearly how cruel and terrible sin has made the human race. Second, it demonstrates how vile, vile sin is. God chose this time in human history to demonstrate his hatred for sin. There's something to be revealed in it in the cross. I thought about how horrific the Temple Mount must, must have been, and I'm sure you have too. We, we've talked about it some, how, how that place wasn't a pristine-looking nice temple, but it was a bloody, probably smelly, grotesque place blood all over everything all over the altar all over the ground day after day but even that in comparison to jesus hanging on the cross is is nothing i think then when we see a a human being an image bearer of god god in the flesh marred beyond all human recognition hanging naked exposed Upon a cross. It demonstrates how vile sin is that God would choose this manner to to reveal to us his hatred of sin. But third, it also demonstrates God's love, and that this is the extent of God's love that he would send his only son whom he loves to take upon himself this brutality of an execution for his people that he loves. It demonstrates the great extent of his love. And so we need to look at it and understand it clearly. And I think the best way to do this is to examine it through the uh, lens of a medical doctor. So I don't really just typically read stuff to you when I'm preaching, but I'm going to read to you um, a little bit. This is uh, Mark Eastman, medical doctor, examined the cross and wrote about it from a medical perspective, just so you can understand what would happen to someone when they were crucified. So that you might understand what Christ endured for us so that we might be saved He says crucifixion was perfected by the Romans they didn't invent it it was invented by the Persians but perfected by the Romans In the first century BC. It's arguably the most painful death ever invented by man, and it's where we get the term excruciating from the victim is placed on his back arms stretched out and nailed to the crossbar the nails which were generally about seven to nine inches long were placed between the bones of the forearm the radius and the ulna and the small bones of the hand the carpal bones the placement of the nail at this point had several effects first it ensured that the victim would indeed hang there until dead second a nail placed at this point would sever the largest nerve in the hand called the median nerve the severing of this nerve is a medical catastrophe in addition to the severe burning pain and the destruction of this, that this nerve causes is permanent paralysis of the hand. Furthermore, by nailing the victim at this point in the wrist, there would be minimal bleeding and there would be no broken bones. The positioning of the feet is probably the most critical part of the mechanics of a crucifixion. First, the knees were flexed to about 90 degrees, and the feet were flexed bent downward an additional 90 degrees until they were parallel with the vertical pole an iron spike about 7 to 9 inches long was driven through the feet between the second and the third metatarsals bones in this position the nail would sever the dorsal pedal artery of the foot but the resulting bleeding would be insufficient to cause death the resulting position on the cross sets up a horrific sequence of events which results in a slow and painful death having been pinned to the cross the victim now has an impossible position to maintain With the knees flexed at about 90 degrees, the victim must bear his weight with with the muscles of his thigh. However, this is an almost impossible task. Try to stand with your knees flexed 90 degrees for just five minutes. As the strength, strength of your legs gives out, and the weight of the body must now be borne by the arms and the shoulders. The result is that within a few minutes of being placed on the cross, the shoulders will become dislocated. Minutes later, the elbows and the wrists will become dislocated. The result of these dislocations is that the arms are now as much as six to nine, ti- nine inches longer than normal. With the arms dislocated, considerable body weight is transferred to the chest, causing the rib cage to be elevated in a state of per- perpetual inhalation. Consequently, In order to exhale, the victim must push down on his feet and allow the rib muscles to relax and the chest wall to be lowered. The problem is that the victim cannot push very long because the legs are extremely fatigued. As time goes on, the victim is less and less able to bear weight on the legs, causing further dislocation of the arms and further raising of the chest wall, making breathing more and more difficult. The result of this process is a series of catastrophic psychological effects. Because the victim cannot maintain adequate ventilation of the lungs, the blood oxygen level begins to diminish and the blood carbon dioxide level begins to rise. The rising CO2 level stimulates the heart to beat faster in order to increase the delivery of oxygen and the removal of CO2. However, due to the pinning of the victim and the limitations of oxygen delivery, the victim cannot deliver more oxygen and the rising heart rate only increases oxygen demand. So this process sets up a vicious cycle of increasing oxygen demand which cannot be met followed by an ever increasing heart rate. After several hours the heart begins to fail the lungs collapse and fill up with fluid which further decreases oxygen delivery to the tissues. The blood loss and the hyperventilation combines to cause severe dehydration. That's why Jesus said I thirst. Over a period of several hours, the combination of collapsing lungs, a failing heart, dehydration, and the inability to get adequate oxygen supplies to the tissue cause an eventual death of the victim. The victim, in effect, cannot breathe properly and slowly suffocates to death. In cases of severe cardiac stress, such as crucifixion, a victim's heart can even burst. This process is called cardiac rupture. This is an absolutely brutal way to die. And if one needs a physical explanation as to why blood and water streamed forth out of Christ's side, as His side was pierced, remember they came to break His legs but He was already dead. Uh, So they pierce His side and blood and water flows. If you need a physical explanation for that, uh, the explanation is that as the rupturing of his heart, the the fluid sac around his heart, and the, the mixture of blood which was already beginning to separate, because if you've been dead for a while, the fluid of your blood will begin to coagulate and separate from water. And this doctor says, as his side is pierced, the spear is, thru- is thrust into it and pierces his heart. The already uh, separating fluid as well as the fluid that surrounds the, the heart, came forth in water and blood. And I found it interesting that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he theorized this was the cause uh, a long time ago. And George and I were talking about this, and, and George said, yeah, but Lloyd-Jones, he was a medical doctor, by the way. He was in line to be the doctor of the king, and then he became a preacher. He was like, but that was a long time ago. There's more technology now, and this is the same explanation that people come up with. Is that uh, Jesus had already been dead when he was pierced, his blood, his heart had ruptured, and the blood was separating from the water. And so it comes forth as a spear is thrust in. There's a physical explanation, though I don't think that one is even necessary, uh, because I think there's great spiritual explanation as we will see. And we don't want to remove, I think, the supernatural element of what's occurring on the cross. Well, what does that tell us, that brutality which Jesus endured, right? And the hypocrisy of these Jews, they want to ensure that Jesus will die. So they go to break his legs, but he's already dead, the text tells us. The spear is thrust into his side, and blood and water comes forth. How terrible. Um, Again, how terrible we are to create such a thing. This came out of the mind of man. How awful is our sin that God chose this as an instrument to reveal the wickedness of sin. And how great is the love of God for us that Christ would endure all of this The physical anguish. Not to mention the, the wrath of God which we have spoken of so, so often, but I want us to grasp the physical brutality of it. There's the hypocrisy, there's this brutality, but there's also the necessity. The blood and water flowed forth. These details, uh, they're, they're telling us something out of necessity. These details are here to ensure that we understand something. Jesus did, in fact, die. He died. It's a powerful testimony to it. As the details are laid out historically, the reality is professional executioners oversaw Jesus' death. And upon penalty of dying, they ensured their task is always carried out. So when the text tells us they went to Jesus and he was already dead and they thrust a spear into his heart and blood came out and these Romans felt it was okay to take him down from the cross. We can be assured Jesus was not only crucified but he died. And it's a necessary detail. Because in John's day, there was already growing several heresies surrounding Jesus' crucifixion. One is docetism is not in full-blown effect, but it's beginning to rise. And that is this idea that Jesus was not really a human being in a flesh and blood body. That he's really like a phantasm. That, yeah, God wants to reveal himself to us in Jesus... But God would never take on matter. He would never take on material form because matter is evil and spiritual is good. So Jesus only looked like he died. God, in fact, he had no body at all. And John's details tell us, he says, I was there, I saw it all. They crucified Jesus. He died as a man dies, and blood and water came forth. And it was verified by Romans. But it also refutes the swoon theory, which is perhaps one of the most ridiculous theories. And, and there's nothing new under the sun. You, you'll occasionally hear people say it. I think it's it's so ridiculous. But the swoon theory is that, yes, Jesus had a flesh and blood body, and yes, he was crucified, but he didn't actually die. Like, he just swooned. He just looked like he was dead. He just, you know, he passed out on the cross because it was so painful. And you See, you've got to come up with some theory, right, because... In just a little while, 500 people are going to see Jesus alive again. It's, it's so reliable as this, Paul says, go ask them. They're still alive. Go ask them. They all saw him. And so you've got to come up with some theory, right? And the theory goes, oh, he, he didn't really die. He failed crucifixion. He just swooned. And it is the most ridiculous theory. It, it's so ridiculous. We can't even recover from a stomach bug in three days. Right. and they, they say Jesus they took him down from the cross and he had a three day rest and he's out in public life again how ridiculous how ridiculous our text tells us definitively Jesus died all of the details are important break his legs so he can't stay there all night alive they go to break him he's already dead So they thrust a spear in his side just to ensure, because their life's on the line, and blood and water come out. He's dead. It's a necessity that we understand this because the wages of sin is death. And if Jesus didn't die, then we're still dead in our sins. We've just seen the physical reality of Jesus' death. We see the hypocrisy, the brutality and its necessity. Now, this spiritual reality flows from this physical reality, and you can't have this, physical, this spiritual reality without this physical reality. So let's look at the spiritual reality now of Jesus death. I, found, I think that John makes it very clear to us the spiritual reality of Jesus death. In two ways, and I'll follow these if you're taking notes, implicitly and explicitly. Implicitly, by that I mean I think if you read your Bible, you're going to get what is not explicitly spelled out here. You're going to get it. It's there. It's in the details. It's right there for you to grab and pick up. But then there's explicitly also. He tells you clearly, plainly, this means this. This happened to fulfill Scripture. So that's how we're going to look at this. Implicitly, the spirituality of Jesus' death, implicitly what's taught, and then explicitly. Okay. So first, implicitly. The spiritual reality of Jesus' death implicitly. And for this, you need to understand and grasp the significance of blood and water in the Bible and in the Gospel of John. Now, we can't look at all of them because there are too many, but these are great themes in your Bible. Water is essential for life. We don't grasp that like uh, people of the Middle East do. Water is essential for life. Um, If we lived in a desert, I think we'd get this reality better, and uh, we got a glimmer of it, I suppose. Was that last year we had the big ice storm a couple years ago? And the water pump went out. And you remember when the water pump went out, there were like no water for like maybe a day. And people are at Walmart like trying to kill each other over bottled water. You remember that? People just lose their mind. Well, imagine you live in the desert and you don't have water. And you like pray to God to give you water. Or you'll die. Water is essential to live. And that's a massive theme that we have in our Bible. In Exodus 17, we get a picture of this. So in Exodus 17, God has rescued his people from Egypt. And they are in the wilderness, not so subtly called the wilderness of sin. If you read it, (laughs) Uh, Exodus 17, not so subtle, the wilderness of sin. And there in the wilderness, they start to grumble. Now, they've already grumbled one time for food. And God's miraculously provided for them food to eat, manna. But they're out there in the middle of nowhere in the desert. They don't have any water, and they start to grumble. Now, they have just seen all of these incredible miracles that God provides, but they start to grumble against Moses. And they're like, they're like, Moses, why did you take us out of Egypt? You should have left us there. Have you brought us out of Egypt to kill us with thirst? That's actually what they say. Have you brought us out of Egypt to kill us here with thirst? And so Moses goes before God, and God says, Moses, go before the people of Israel, gather up the elders. When You've gathered the elders. I'm going to go stand on that rock, and I want you to hit me or hit the rock with your staff, and water's going to spring forth. It's such a strange thing. I'm going to stand on the rock. God's going to stand on the rock, and you hit the rock and water of life will burst forth in the desert. How strange. But not strange. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.4 that the rock by which they drank in the wilderness was Christ. And here in our text... We have God hanging on a cross in this sin filled wilderness of a world. He's struck by man, and the water of life comes forth. It's implicit, but I think it's clear. His side is pierced and water burst forth. And, of course, the water symbolism is all throughout John, and John, uh, Jesus is talking about it readily in many places. He tells the woman at the well. Remember, Jesus comes down to the, to the well, and this, the Sumer, this woman of Samaria is there, and she comes to draw water. And Jesus says, give me a drink. And she's like, what are you doing talking to me? You're a Jew, Samaritan. How do you ask me for a drink? And Jesus says, woman, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me for a drink. And she's like, what are you talking about? You don't even to draw water. Remember this? He says, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that's saying this to you, give me a drink, you would ask Him and He would give you living water. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become to Him a spring welling up to eternal life. It's implicit in the passage. We can't live without Water, and Jesus is the water of life. He's the water of life. And he he would stand up in the Temple Mount later in John 7, and he would cry out loudly, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. They're celebrating this very thing, that God gave them water in the wilderness. That's what they're celebrating at the Temple when Jesus stands up and says that. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. It's there. It's in the passage. They they stuck him in his side and water flowed forth. But next, also implicitly, I think there is this lesson of, this twin lesson of remission of sin and cleansing or justification and sanctification. So blood and water carry symbolic meaning. right? And when we come to the Old Testament, we see that Everything, all sin is forgiven by the shedding of blood, right? The high priest goes into the Holy of Holies and takes the blood of the sacrifice of this offering that he has for the people with, past the veil and, he's, and he puts it upon the mercy seat and the people's sins are taken away by blood. Leviticus 17.11 tells us it's because the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. That's what God says. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life that communicates to us the serious nature of sin. That without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. This is what the author of Hebrews tells us. And the wages of sin is death. Without the giving up of life, there's no forgiveness of sin. And it's symbolized to us in Blood. And here is Jesus Christ who has offered himself up before God on our behalf. Offered himself as a priest, making the most perfect and holy sacrifice for sin. Not an animal, something that needs to be repeated, but himself. A flawless, perfect sacrifice. And the blood flows from his side freely as a symbol of. Right, as a symbol that anyone might come to Him and find their sins forgiven. Hebrews nine eleven through 12 says, But when Christ appeared as High Priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of, blood of goats or calves, but by the means of His own blood, thus securing an, an eternal redemption. And it is through his blood that we are justified, forgiven of our sin, made right with God. But there's also this truth symbolized in the water because the blood and water came forth and it's the picture of sanctification or of cleansing. Because Jesus doesn't just forgive our sins and and send us on our merry way, right? His death changes us. It cleanses us from the defilement of sin. Water so clearly symbolizes this spiritual cleansing, especially in John's Gospel. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus is talking to Jesus and inquiring about how does one gain eternal life. And Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, Jesus is pointing us back to an Old Testament passage in Ezekiel regarding the New Covenant and what God promises to do. And what God promises to do through Ezekiel is to sprinkle clean water on you, which is a symbol of the Holy Spirit... And through the regenerative washing of the Holy Spirit, remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and write His law upon your heart and empower you to live for God. There's the cleansing which comes through what Christ has done in the coming of the Holy Spirit. And this is what we see in John's Gospel. Jesus offering spiritual cleansing to anyone that will come to Him and drink, that is just to receive Him by faith. John 7, 37 is where he jumped up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come. Let him come to me and drink, and out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And the same promise is here today. The same promise is here today that in Christ we find our sins forgiven and we find cleansing of sin. And that's important that we understand that. right? We have to stop and just think about this point and emphasize this for a point of application In Christ, we aren't just forgiven of our sins. We are transformed and washed and made new by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is symbolized by water, the cleansing. He cleanses us of our guilt and all of the effects of sin. And sin carries with it a heavy baggage. Even if you haven't personally done the sinning, sin contaminates and carries heavy baggage. I was reminded of it this is just this past week. I read the sad account of a, of a woman who grew up in church and, and has left the church. And she heard, I think, probably law preaching all the time, is, if, I, if I can discern what she wrote. She heard a heavy dose of the law without the gospel. See, she had developed a drinking problem By the time she was a teenager because she was, in her words, self-medicating, dealing with being sexually abused when she was younger. And she said her whole life she felt dirty and guilty and ashamed. And so she began to drink heavily. But all the sermons she would ever preach were how drinking was such a sin and terrible and drunkenness was terrible. And so eventually she just left the church And while drunkenness is a sin, for sure. I think what is the sad reality of this is there was was nothing balanced out in her life, and she never learned that Christ cleanses us from all sin. And by that, I mean that sin may do things to you even if you didn't do them. I think we need to face this reality. Sin is like spiritual COVID in a way, right? Everything is contaminated by it. Where you can be sinned against and not guilty personally and yet suffer the rest of your life under the effects of sin. It leaves a stain. It contaminates your soul. It makes you feel guilty. It makes you feel worthless makes you feel like God would never have you, that you're not worthy of God, that God is against you, even if you didn't do the sinning yourself. And so it just spreads out through the world like a cancer. And I think we need to understand that what Christ offers is not just forgiveness of sin. He offers cleansing, that He'll actually make you a new person, so that no matter what has happened to you in your life, no matter what, anything, literally the most horrific things You could have done them personally, or they could have been done to you. And if you come to Jesus Christ, to that twin stream which flows from His side, you receive forgiveness of sin, and He washes you and takes all the defilement of sin away. To where you become a new person in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. And they're gone, and He takes it away. And it's all because of His work. And that's what He promises So maybe that's you today. I don't know if that's you. I don't know what's happened to you in this life, what people have done to you in the past. You may have never done it. But if if that's happened to you or something like that's happened to you, Jesus will take all of it away. He will take it all and He will wash you by His Spirit and remove all of these feelings of guilt and shame and all of the pain, He'll take it away. That's the twin truths that we see. Forgiveness of sin by His blood and the washing renewal of the Holy Spirit." Now these are implicit truths, and I didn't create them. I'm not some genius, right? Matthew Henry, which it seems everyone borrowed from Matthew Henry in some capacity. Listen to what he says, "...the blood and the water flowed out, and they're significant." They signify two great benefits which all believers partake of through Christ's justification and sanctification. Blood for remission, water for regeneration. Blood for atonement, water for purification. Blood and water were used very much under the law. Guilt contracted must be expiated by blood. Stains contracted must be done away with by water of purification. These two must also always go together. You are sanctified and you are justified. Now, these are the implicit truths, I think, that are in the passage, but there are two explicit, explicit truths. Look at verse 36. These things took place that Scripture might be fulfilled. And he quotes this. Not one of his bones will be broken. Now, this cues us back into a major theme of Jesus' life that has been captured by John already numerous times, that Jesus is the Passover Lamb of God. This was told us at the beginning in John 1.29 by John the Baptist, his forerunner. As Jesus comes to him in the Jordan, John says, he stands up and he says, This is he whom I said after me comes one who ranks before me. He says, Behold the Lamb of God. That Jesus is the Lamb of God. And, and John sees here in this detail, this detail of Jesus' legs not being broken, which is a brutal practice. Uh, called crurufragram, what a strange word, but a Roman soldier takes a big heavy mallet and smashes your shin bones so that you just collapse and then you'll die, probably within a matter of minutes. But they didn't do that to Jesus, so not one of his bones were broken. And John quotes for us this to say this is significant. And Why is it significant? Well, it's interesting. Exodus twenty, uh, Exodus twelve forty-six, and Numbers nine twelve record God's stipulation. Remember the Passover, as the as they are, there, God's going to rescue them from the Egyptians. There's one final plague coming, the plague of the firstborn. That God's wrath is going to fall on Egypt. All firstborn will be swept away by God's fury. And God says, I'm providing for you a Passover lamb. You put the blood of the Passover lamb on your doorpost. My wrath will pass you by but don't break the legs. Why? Why? What a strange detail. Why does it matter? You're going to kill an animal, eat it, and spread some blood on your doorpost, but don't break its legs. Don't break any bones. The, the, there's no explanation other than this is the setup, right? He's setting us up for you, that there's a greater Passover coming a greater Passover lamb, and it's Jesus Christ. That Jesus is our great Passover lamb. That if you are under Christ, it doesn't matter what you've done in your life. If you've come to Christ for refuge, when God's wrath passes by, you'll be untouched. You'll be unscathed because of Christ And it doesn't matter. There's this. D.A. Carson has this great little thing on this. I can't even remember how it goes. But just think about being an ancient Israelite. And the Passover is coming. You I mean the people are like, is this, this is really what we do? We just get under this blood? And God's like, there are various levels of faith involved, right? There are various levels of faith. There are people who are like wholeheartedly sold out in their allegiance to Yahweh. Then there are others who are like, you know, that's, 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 that's an odd thing. But he said to do it, so I'll do it, and and they were all safe. And there are Christians like that. There are Christians that are sold out. Their faith is rock solid, and there are others who go through life all shaky. They're like, man, I, they just struggle with it. They say, but God said it, so I, you know, I believe what God said. And it does. It doesn't matter where you are on that spectrum. If you're in Christ, God's wrath passed you by. That's the beauty of Christ as our. Passover lamb. And that's explicitly here in the passage. That's not implicit. He's telling us this is God's Passover lamb. There's one more explicit truth. And it comes in this phrase, they shall look on him who they have pierced. We read this passage earlier. This is from Zechariah's longer section in Zechariah 12 and 13. About uh, this reflection upon the poor and terrible state of Jerusalem. And the fact that there's coming a future time, a future day, when they will gaze upon him who they have pierced. And because of this time, on that day there will be a fountain opened for the house of David and in the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse from sin and uncleanness. Zechariah 13.1 But if you go back to Zechariah something interesting in this passage in Zechariah 12 Who are they looking on whom they have pierced Isn't it odd to look and see in 12:10 They will look on me on him whom they have pierced Who's speaking Who's speaking in this passage God is speaking. They will look on me. <laughs> and if you it's just it's amazing to think about this. The condescension of God fulfilled in a literal fashion that we literally pierced the heart of God in our sin. It will render you speechless. They will look on him who they have pierced. But what is the promise that God brings about because of this? On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. They will see him who they have pierced and they will mourn. And I think this is, of course, there, I think there is a coming great fulfillment of this, but it explicitly happens at the preaching of Peter at Pentecost. The fountain is open, and the invitation goes forth, and many come to wash in this fountain. This fountain for cleansing of sin, for washing of uncleanness, and the fountain is open. The fountain was opened through Christ, and the fountain was opened then, and the fountain is open now. The fountain is open today for you to come and receive freely. This is, this is how the book of Revelation ends. We've got to pay close attention to it. In Revelation 22, there is a new creation. There is God and His throne, and the Lamb of God upon the throne, and a river of life is coming from His throne. And He gives an invitation anyone can come and drink of this river freely without price. It's a river of life, it's the Holy Grail, it's the fountain of youth, it's eternal life not in a legend, in reality, flowing from Christ's side in blood and water. These are the twin realities of Jesus' of Jesus's death. The physical reality, the physical reality, the brutality of it, the reality of it, usher in the spiritual reality that Christ forgives sinners and He makes them new. Implicitly, we see Jesus as the rock of our salvation being struck so that water comes forth in the wilderness of sin. Implicitly, we see the blood and water, the twin truths of justification and sanctification. And explicitly, we see Him as the Lamb of God, God pierced for our transgressions. And I would simply just close with you these words of this famous hymn, which we sung earlier. So you can see where this hymn comes from. Right? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power. Till all the ransomed ones of God be saved to sin no more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ and that you have given him on our behalf. That he's your sacrifice for sin. That we might come to him freely. Find forgiveness and cleansing. That you make us new. God, I pray that these profound truths would be driven down deep into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if any here has not come to Christ, God, I pray that they would come to him today. That you would open their eyes to see in him a great Savior. That they would run to him and find forgiveness.